Well, um, let me introduce you, before we get into scripture, uh, to my new friend. His name is Jake, um, and I have a picture of him sooner or later. Here he is. He is our uh, new puppy. He's six months old, and he is a part corgi, and he's mostly pretty smart. Uh, and so, anyways, he looks a little bit like a kangaroo. There he is sleeping. He's a really cute guy. We love Jake. My wife's been asking for Jake for about seven years, and so... Uh, you know, we figured, why not add another toddler um, to the house? So, anyway, um, I really love you, Lauren. Uh, anyway, so, uh, actually, I actually really dig Jake. He's pretty cool most of the time. But uh, one of the issues I have with Jake is he really loves shoes. He loves my slippers. Here he is with my um, slipper. And... Uh, he has, like, zero ability to have any self-control. He cannot resist chewing on my slipper if it is available, even though I assure you it stinks horribly. Um, so I'm sure you wanted to know that. Jake has no self-control, none whatsoever. He has, he has a constant desire to chew on shoes. The only way to help him obey our desire uh, for him to leave shoes alone is to do one of two things. We either have to remove the temptation completely, right? actually, like, take the shoe and put it in a closet or somewhere up high, uh, or we have to, you know, modify behavior over a series of months through a system of rewards and consequences. Um, but we can't change his nature. His default desire, as Jake the dog, is going to be get shoes, find shoes, eat shoes. Okay? Like, that's going to be his thing. And so I have a question for you this morning as we get into a new series through the Gospel of Luke. And that is this. Are we like Jake? Are we destined to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over? Are we, uh, is our main hope to just grin and bear it and kind of just troop it out until we die? Always suppressing an appetite for destructive patterns and rebellious behavior. Always removing every semblance of a choice from ourselves so that we are never able to follow through with temptation. Uh, is that us? Are we Jake? Or are we something else entirely? Is there actually a deeper, more robust alternative for us as we face all kinds of different temptations to veer away from the faithful life that God calls us to in following his son, Jesus? So today we're going to actually look at how Luke begins to answer this question for us. Uh, and so we're going to look at a story of Jesus experiencing temptation. So if you have a Bible, turn it open to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And this is a part of our new series. It's called In the Public Eye. And we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking at this next section of Luke where Jesus launches his public ministry of preaching the good news, uh, enacting the kingdom, healing and teaching. And we meet Jesus afresh in this section, looking at what he said and did each week through the end of July. It's going to be a great time looking at who Jesus is and what he did. But before he gets to a place where he can go public, he has a showdown with the devil out in the desert. And it's a place where Jesus' loyalty and his love for God are tested and where he demonstrates his obedience to God the Father in all things, including how he's going to actually execute his mission to bring God's kingdom. 
And this temptation story is actually a prelude to his public ministry. It serves in Luke's gospel as a hinge story between the introduction of Jesus in chapters 1 through 3 and then the public ministry of Jesus in chapters 4 through 9 before he sets directly towards Jerusalem in uh, 9 through 19. So Luke has just told us in chapter 3 that Jesus has been baptized by this guy named John, a prophet, and God's spirit had descended on him like a dove. You remember that scene? It was, it was a few months ago now that we've been in Luke. But this is where we, we, we left off. And a voice from heaven, God's voice, proclaimed, This Jesus is my son, my beloved son. Okay? And uh, it was followed, this, this story is then followed by a genealogy. It's a list of names. It's Jesus' family line and, and how each guy is the son of that guy and the son of that guy. And then we finally land on Adam. And Adam, we are told, is a son of God. And so this story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is, is actually described by an early church father by the name of Irenaeus as the Garden of Eden redo. That Jesus does perfectly what humanity had failed to do. That the destiny of humanity is actually tied up in two sons of God. The first one, Adam, brought catastrophe. And the second one, Jesus brings redemption. So let's see how this plays out in Luke chapter 4. Take a look with me at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness... For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. And so after Jesus' baptism and anointing for ministry, the reader of Luke is faced with the question, which is this. What does it actually mean to be God's son? And what will he do? And the first thing that we read is that Jesus is someone full of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? It, it means that Jesus is a God-directed, God-filled, God-empowered kind of person. Uh, the text tells us that he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness and that he was tested for 40 days by the devil. Now, now why do we need to know this? Like, what's so significant about wilderness and 40 and, and this temptation experience of Jesus? Well, the other day, uh, we were working... Um, as a staff team up in our, our little kind of like makeshift office and we're planning to kind of redo our offices and so Ted left the room and said, oh, I'm going to go get the plans, right? Like the building plans. And so Pastor Dave and I were sitting there doing our thing and he makes this great comment. He says, Commander, tear this ship apart until you found those plans. Right? Which is from What? Star Wars, right? This is Darth Vader's line, right? And he's looking for those transmissions, the Death Star plans. And so, what was Pastor Dave doing in that moment? Other than being a nerd, right? Uh, so, he was, what was he, what was he doing? He, he actually was actually, he's quoting from a story. He was infusing the present moment with meaning from another narrative, right? And so I jumped in and was like, but we're on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan, right? And so we had, we had fun with that for a minute, and... And he was like, I knew you'd like that, Bowen. And I was like, I did. I did like that. I had to keep the Star Wars dream alive. And so what, what we, do, we do this all the time. We quote from a movie or from a book or from an experience. And what we're doing is we're pulling from another narrative and we're giving meaning or humor to a present experience. We do this all the time, right? And so Luke is doing a very similar thing. 
He's actually quoting from another narrative. He's anchoring his Jesus story in a bigger story. And so what he does is he says that Jesus was led into the wilderness and he was there for 40 days being tempted. In fact, what Luke is doing is he's retelling the entire Jesus story around the story of Israel. Or I'm sorry, the entire story of Israel around Jesus. The idea of wilderness takes us back to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And and there, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the last book, it's actually the last sermon of Moses before he dies and the people go into the land. And it was there in Deuteronomy where Moses recounts Israel's story up to that point. That they had wandered through the wilderness after they were set free from Egypt and they came to the land that God promised them and they came up to the cusp of the land and, and they sent in spies and... Two of them said, let's do it, we can do it, God's big. And the rest of them said, no, we're just brickmakers from Egypt. We can't do it, right? And they rebelled against God. And, and in the next 40 years, they wandered through wilderness territory. And God let a generation die off before he drew them back to enter the land of promise. And so the wilderness represents a pretty bad place. This is not a vacation spot for Israel. This is... A bad place. It's a, it's a place where they continually question God's provision and his presence and they plunge into idolatry. And Luke also references the time of testing as 40 days, which is again this, this picture of the 40 years that Israel wandered. And so what Luke is doing is he's merging the place of testing and the time of testing. And he's putting them together and he's linking them to what Jesus is now doing And what happens here is that Luke anchors the Jesus story inside the Israel story because Israel was called God's son as a nation. But they had utterly failed in the wilderness and they had been subject to that 40 years of wandering and they fell in every single way that Jesus was tempted. They grumbled about a lack of food even though God provided all they needed. They they worshipped idols even though they had seen God undo every god of Egypt and show them up. And they put God to the test, even though he was good and faithful to them. But Jesus comes as God's true son, the new representative of Israel, to do and be all that Israel failed to be, but to do it in a way that was perfect. And so this is the much bigger context in which we find our story this morning. I hope that helps you. One of the other factors I want to show you this morning is that every time Jesus is tempted in this narrative, he responds with scripture. And we have a tendency sometimes when we're in tough moments to reach into the Bible and find a proof text to just help us in that moment, right? We don't really pay attention to the context. We're just like, that one sounds good. I need that run right now. But what Jesus does is he reaches back and he finds the most appropriate text in its context to speak to his present situation. And he reaches back and he quotes only from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which is the place where Moses summons Israel, the new generation about to enter the land. And he says, be faithful to Yahweh as the next generation enters the land. Don't be like the generation before you. And he reminds them, don't fall in the ways that the previous generation had. Renew your commitment and your covenant to Yahweh. And Jesus goes back and he draws from Deuteronomy 6 through 8 to be the perfect son, the true Israelite who keeps the covenant perfectly. It's a perfect scripture for a 40-day test in the wilderness. Let's see how he does it. Verse 3. Let's look at the heart of these temptations. Verse 3. The devil said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, back in verse 2, you have to understand, we, we learn that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. I fasted for a few days, like maybe, I don't know, it's pretty weak. I'm, I'm not going to tell you the real number. Um, like three hours. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's better than that. Um, <coughs> but 40 days without food. Can you imagine that? You would be hungry. Like really, really hungry. Like maybe almost dead hungry. Like mostly dead, but not all dead. Like just barely hanging on. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he's hungry. And why, why does that matter to us? That Jesus is hungry in this moment. Well, um, I think it matters for a couple reasons. The first is that the most, uh, one of the most important realities about Jesus is this. He's a person just like you and me. He's actually totally human. Fully human is what the scriptures teach. And, and Jesus is certainly divine. He's got that going for him. But we often think of Jesus in, term, in terms of Superman. Like he's extra human. Like he's got this God card and he can leap over a single building in a single bound and run faster than a locomotive if he wanted to. But, but Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself. Like he, he, he took the God powers off. Right? That he actually, he submitted himself to a human life. And we think of, him, we think of ourselves like, wow, oh, we're just like Jake. We're these kind of wretched creatures, but Jesus is like Yoda and he can levitate or something. I don't know. And we kind of put him in an extra human category. But Jesus experiences an intense and rigorous time of testing and he gets more and more hungry and he's totally human, which means this, that he has the most basic needs that you and I have. He experienced them in the same way. In fact, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness. Because guess what? He was tempted like us in every way, in every respect, yet without sin. So you know what that means? It means he absolutely gets it. He knows exactly what it's like to be you and to be me. And he says, I can help. The other thing we notice from this is that Satan will exploit our weaknesses. He will, he will find the most opportune time for him and the least opportune time for us. He will find us in our vulnerability and attack there because that's exactly what he does to Jesus. And we have to be aware that the, there is actually an enemy and he will use moments where we are vulnerable. So it's important for us to know when that is. Like it, it is important to know when we are most vulnerable, most susceptible to the accusation of the enemy, most susceptible to the temptation of the enemy. My, my wife has gotten really good at knowing when to pack a little extra snack in her purse when we go out. She knows for the next three hours we're not going to be eating and Matt is going to become an instrument in, of Satan. If I don't hand him a snack, right? And like, there's this, there's these moments where she looks at me and she's like, "You need to eat," right? And she's like, she knows my vulnerability, because uh, I would become a, just a mean person if I'm not fed, so um, or if I don't feed myself, which I often forget to. So, um, so Jesus is vulnerable because he's human and he's hungry, and Satan says, "Well, if you're the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread." The, the Greek here is translated, if you are the son of God, but the, it's not really an if-if. It's actually more like a, um, a since-if, 
if here means since you are the son of God. This isn't a test to see if Jesus is the son of God. It is a test grounded on the assumption that he actually is the son of God. See, Satan has some decent theology when it comes to who Jesus is. But he doesn't submit to him. And so he has a custom-tailored temptation for Jesus. See, here's a question for you. Is it a bad thing to make bread? How many of you are are bread makers? You love to make bread. Any bread makers in the room? No? Repent if you are a bread maker today. That is the message. You may go home. No, I'm just kidding. Is it a bad thing to make bread? No. No, especially when you're hungry. Like, if you're starving, like, God is usually in favor of you eating bread. Like, this is good. Um, Satan is not tempting Jesus to accomplish a bad goal. This is not go out and kill a guy. This is eat something. Make something for yourself. Make yourself a snack. And rather, he's tempting Jesus to achieve a very good goal with the wrong means, in the wrong way, to do a good thing the wrong way, independent of God. See, later Jesus is going to provide bread for the masses. He's going to do it miraculously. And we learn that this is not sin for him to do it. What's being tested here is Jesus' trust in God's provision. You see, Satan's essentially saying here in this test, you're God's son for crying out loud. He wouldn't want you to go starving in the desert like this. Maybe he's abandoned you. You need to look out for yourself. You need to take matters into your own hand. Make some bread for yourself. Get what you're entitled to. Meet your own need under your own power. See, the temptation to turn stones to bread is to doubt God's provision of all that we need and to take matters into our own hands, to do it our own way. So you don't have to wait on God. You can be independent. You can take matters into your own hands when it comes to what you need. But that's exactly the temptation that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, isn't it? If you eat this, you'll be like God. Your eyes will be open. You'll be able to know good and evil, which means you'll be able to decide for yourself what's good and bad apart from God. But Jesus, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, is actually capable of perceiving the hook within the bait. And there's always a catch when it comes to the offers of the enemy. And he realizes that Satan is not telling Jesus to be strong in this moment, but to be independent. And independence from God is not strength, but it is certain death. And so he replies to Deuteronomy 8, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And if you go back and you read Deuteronomy 8, the next line is, in the context, is that every uh, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is saying, life isn't defined by bread. Life isn't defined by my car. Life isn't defined by houses or clothes or awesome vacations. Life for Jesus it's about knowing the living God and obeying what he says. See, life for Jesus, as well as life for us, is defined not by what we possess, but by doing the Father's will. But to follow God is to live, and this is the opposite of the American dream. To submit yourself to anyone is death in the American dream. But to go and acquire and get more, take things into your own hands, that is certainly success in our culture. And so we have to reject the lie that says you can't really rely on God to meet what you need. Instead, we have to seek first his kingdom and his ways and realize that he will add everything we need. Where we have to learn to reject the constant temptation to find our life and what we possess, to reduce our identity to consumers and to take our needs into our own hands 
and where we go into more and more and more debt to have more and more things and to have a higher status, where we get ourselves ahead of God's provision because we don't really believe he's going to give us what we need. So we pause here and we ask a question. Is there a temptation in my life to believe that God's holding out on me? To believe that he's keeping from me that which I need? And to trust God for his provision does not mean to just simply be passive and do nothing. But it means to work with him, to submit to him, to work with what he gives you. Um, The next thing we see here, there's a temptation to take all the kingdoms of the world. Verse 5. Um, He says, uh, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is this vision, right? He gives Jesus a vision. He captures his imagination and he says to him, to you, I will give all this authority of all the kingdoms, right? And all their glory and for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And again, Satan knows who he's talking to. This is not your run-of-the-mill mall cop who's hungry for power. This is like the Son of God and Lord of Lords. If there's one person you're going to offer all the kingdoms to, he's the one who's actually entitled to them. Colossians says that he created all things, all things hold together in him, and all things are for him. He's the one person to whom all things are actually due. And yet... Jesus refuses to allow what is his rightfully to come in a way that is corrupted. And so um, offering the one person who has rights to everything is to say, in effect, you can have what you want without all the trouble. You can have what you want without the mess of suffering. You can have what you want without all that potential rejection, Jesus. The Bible refers to the devil as the prince of this world. That he's been granted some temporary authority to those who are aligned with him. But his offer is a lie. He can only offer quick access to power without suffering. But Jesus knows the truth. He knows that there's no shortcuts in the kind of kingdom he will bring. He won't bring a kingdom that depersonalizes. He won't bring a kingdom that coerces. He will bring a kingdom that invites And Jesus refuses to align himself with Satan. He remains loyal to the Father. And so he replies to Deuteronomy 6.13 that declares that only Yahweh, the true God, is worthy of worship. In fact, this verse also includes that Yahweh alone should be served, which tells us that true service to God means remaining loyal to him, refusing to mix our loyalties. There's a lot of things that compete for our loyalties, aren't there, friends? So a lot of things that compete for our loyalties that become counterfeit gods. And the temptation for Jesus here is to accomplish great good. It would have been good for him to be at the helm of all kingdoms. He would have done good with it. But see, compromising the means and the ways by which it is accomplished would completely corrupt every bit of good he would ever hope to accomplish. See, he refuses to accept a crown without the cross. He refuses to exalt power over the one true God. And there are good things 
for us in our lives that we pursue and that we're faithful to that sometimes we allow to go sideways, that we turn into ultimate things. Maybe you have a ministry or a family or a person that is a good thing in your life. You've let it become an ultimate thing and you sacrifice the ways and means of pursuing it and you don't do it God's way. Maybe there's, there's, a, there's an idol of a, of a ministry for you. Right? The moment... The way it is being accomplished, the way you like it accomplished, if that's threatened, you get grumpy and you start complaining. And Oh my gosh, what does that say? It means that your good thing that you do for God has become your God. And and Jesus refuses this. And so we pause and say, are there good things in our life where we're tempted to make into an ultimate thing? Where we, we would do it with or without God. It's the kind of thing that if it was threatened, it would make us afraid or depressed. There's good things that we're tempted to do in ways that just don't match the ends. Maybe that's you on some level. And finally, we we see the temptation to test God's protection. In verse 9, He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this is interesting. That Satan, seemingly again in a vision, puts the highest point of the temple before Jesus and tells him to jump. Except this time, Satan changes his strategy a little bit, right? He's been bested now twice by Scripture, so now he quotes from Psalm 91. It's like, you bested my giant, you bested my Spaniard. Anyway, I'm going to throw Psalm 91 at you, right? And so he quotes, which, by the way, Psalm 91, ironically, is a messianic psalm. It's It's a psalm about the Messiah on some level. And apparently in first century Judaism, this was a psalm used in... Uh, in uh, like a spiritual sense of defense against demons even. So Satan is a funny little bugger. And he comes at Jesus with Psalm 91. You can imagine the vision of the high point of the temple. And many, many think this is the southeast corner of the temple that looks over the Kidron Valley. Josephus, first century historian, mentions the height of this location that it would make someone dizzy looking over it. Like when you look over the edge of the Grand Canyon, or over the edge of Multnomah Falls. It's this 450-foot drop. And so the devil offers this simple request, and he says, go ahead, throw yourself off. I mean, since you're God's son, because if your God's really good, then he'll send angels to catch you. If you really trust him, then you'd do that. You won't really get hurt. This is the temple. It's the place that represents the closeness of God. Surely, if you really trusted, you'd have no problem jumping. If God really cares, you can throw yourself off. And so the citation of Psalm 91 is a clear message that if you're really God's, if you really belong to him, then he won't let you get hurt. He won't let anything bad happen to you if he's really good. You ever hear that lie? I mean, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let something bad happen Oh, bad things happen. God can't be good. He can't love me. He can't even exist. See, this is one of Satan's oldest. It's been going around for a while. And yet, 
the son, the beloved son, knows what's coming. That there will be a day when the father allows the worst to come his way. So that he can do something once and for all irreversibly good for all the world. To conquer sin and evil once and for all. And so Jesus sees through the devil's scheme. He quotes again from Deuteronomy 6. Its context here is, again, not to test the Lord the same way Israel tested the Lord as they entered the land at the previous generation. And so Jesus sees through the lie. He recognizes that jumping off would merely say this to God. It would be a way of saying, I don't think you're really going to take care of me, so I'm going to put you in a situation where you have to take care of me on my terms. This is the opposite of a trusting relationship, where we say, I want you to prove your goodness on my terms. I'm going to put a box on God, that if God is really good, then these are the kinds of things that that God can't let happen. And so we test God too, don't we? We put some restraints and some parameters on the kind of God that we think is manageable and comfortable for us. I was just reading the Narnia books to my kids, and I just read to Penny last night about the the beaver's conversation with the kids, the Pevensey kids, and they're asking about Aslan. And little Lucy says, is he a safe lion? And the beaver, right, what does he say? He's not safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. So we have to untame our picture of God, but trust his goodness in the midst of things that don't make sense. All three of these temptations are targeted at a relationship of trust and loyalty to God. In all three, Jesus resists powerfully. In all three, he uses scripture in their proper context. He applies it personally. He uses the power of the spirit, which enables him to make choices rooted in his identity as the son of God consistent with his mission as Messiah to bring God's kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom that is unlike what people think. Um, One scholar says this, all of the suggestions put to Jesus by the devil reflect popular ideas and beliefs about what the Messiah would do when he appeared. Just as God had during the wilderness wanderings, the Messiah was expected to bring bread down from heaven, to subject other kingdoms to Israel, and to perform dazzling signs that would convince religious leadership. But Jesus refuses this way. It's impersonal, and it's not his way. And so what do we do with all this? What difference does it actually make in our lives as we actually face temptations? Where we live out obedience. And is it even possible to live like this? Well, three things this morning that we can walk away with. The first is this. We have to learn not to be discouraged by temptation. We have to learn not to be discouraged when there's temptation in our lives. This is, this is huge. See, Jesus was full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And at the end of this section, we'll read it next week, he, was, he, he left in the power of the Spirit. Okay, does this sound like somebody who's messing up a lot? Screwed up guy or not? No. This is the Son of God with the best descriptor you can have of a human. Full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, powered by the Spirit. What? And yet, he's tempted. So, We have this lie that we believe sometimes, and it goes like this. If I'm a really good Christian, if I'm really mature, if I'm really grown up in my faith, then I wouldn't experience temptation as much as I do. You ever hear that one? You ever feel that one? Like, something's wrong with me if I'm still drawn to this. 
if I still feel this. But the truth is, I'm actually not more mature because I experience an absence of temptation. I'm actually mature when I'm obedient in spite of it. Does that make sense this morning? Because Jesus doesn't have an absence of temptation. An old English Puritan preacher named Thomas Brooks once said this. He says, Temptations are rather hopeful evidences that your estate is good, that you are dear to God, and that it shall go well with you forever than otherwise. God had but one son without corruption, but he had none without temptation. Pirates make the fiercest assaults upon those vessels that are most richly laden, and so does Satan upon those souls that are most richly laden with the treasures of grace and with the riches of glory. In fact, I'd say this morning that this story of Jesus shows us that it is often in doing the very will of God that we find the most resistance from the enemy. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that it might be a very bad sign if you don't experience temptation, if you can't actually think of and name places where you are tempted. And here's why. I think there's at least two reasons for it. One, it probably means you're so self-deceived into thinking that you don't sin or actually that you have become so comfortable in approving of your sins that you don't actually recognize that it's temptation anymore. Or the second thing, uh, which is very likely as well, is that your life poses no threat to the enemy because you're actually not living for the kingdom in any significant way. You're already so bought in to another story that your life poses no threat. So why bother spending energy tempting you? Well, that's not a very encouraging thing, is it? So let me encourage you this morning that when you're tempted, don't be discouraged by it. Don't be discouraged by it. Be encouraged and turn to God in it. Don't turn away, but turn toward him in it, just like Jesus, okay? Okay, the second thing we need to do and we need to take away from this is that we need to take our stand by embracing the fullness of what we have, okay? It's not just being comfortable with temptation. I'm not saying that, okay? It's not being discouraged when it happens. But what do you do when it happens? Well, you have to actually take your stand by embracing all that you have in Christ. Let me show you how this works. See, Jesus entered the wilderness uh, in this testing season after he'd been anointed by the Spirit, declared the Son of God, and then filled and led by the Spirit as he continued to trust the Father. And let me say this to you this morning. I believe you and I have the exact same resources as Jesus. Let me show you how. See, Jesus not only put his foot down against Satan, he actually let his foot be pierced for our sins. You see, he took our punishment and took our place. Until you see that, until you see that, you won't be able to withstand temptation except by sheer willpower. You'll be like Jake. Jesus will only be an example to you and eventually a burden because you won't be able to do what he did. You see, without Christ and what he's done, we'll be left like a dog in a slipper, right? But because of Christ, the perfect son who died for us, he lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died. And when you see him in our place and you embrace him in faith, if you do that today, it says, the scripture says that he, he accepts us into his family, that you and I become sons and daughters of the Most High God. See, he didn't just endure temptation as an example. He endured and resisted temptation as our Savior. See, because of Jesus, God graciously makes us his children and he calls us son and daughter. 
And he brings us into a place of relationship where we can trust him. And we can trust him because we can look to the cross and we can see there it's demonstrated that he loves us and he's good. And each of these temptations was an assault on a trust relationship between God and the Father and God the Son. And Jesus consistently chose to be allied with and loyal to the Father over the devil's alternate story. But he did so with the exact same resources God gives us, with adoption into his family, an accepted status that you are a son and daughter of God Most High, and with the power of the Spirit and the power of the Scriptures. And then the Spirit, you know what he does? Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit confirms in our hearts that we're God's children. That we're actually God's children. Romans 8 says, Paul says that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. That we have a new relationship and a new identity. Jeremiah 31, a great place that talks about the coming new covenant that the Messiah would bring. It involves the promise that the Spirit would come and live in God's people, causing us to have God's heart on our hearts, that we'd live out His law from within rather than from without. And if we understand what we've been given in our adoption as sons and daughters, that the Spirit gives us a new heart with new longings, that Romans 5 says that He pours out the love of God into our hearts so that we begin to love what God loves, then we can see that when we're tempted, we can operate out of a new identity with a new set of affections and loves and desires. But we also have competing desires. And this is the third thing. We have to learn the difference between strong and deep desires. See, we have strong desires for something in the moment. Whether it's a stroke of the ego or it's lust or it's dishonesty or it's something else entirely, there's a strong desire in that moment to, to take my need, take it into my own hands, or to pursue a good through the wrong means, or to put God to the test on my terms, to take control. But because of the Spirit, we actually have a deeper desire for righteousness and obedience. And Jesus, he strongly wanted food. He strongly wanted the kingdom. He deeply, or he strongly wanted glory. But more than the strong desires, he had a deeper desire to serve his Father, to trust him. And even if it meant suffering before glory. And when you see that, when you grasp that, you're not like Jake at all. You're not destined to keep making the same mistakes, but you have a new identity, a new nature, and a new heart. You might still have the strong impulses for that thing that seems urgent, but something deeper in you because of the Spirit's work in your life is, is happening that's more important. And when you ask, what will make me most deeply, fully happy? It's not going to be something that's going to break my Father's heart. It's not going to be something that I'm going to have to uh, uh, apologize for and regret and sometimes and so we have to learn the difference between those desires and we have to learn to listen to the deeper desires and this is a process over our lives but you also have to see Jesus in your place and yourself now in him that you are a child and you're empowered by the spirit of God with a new heart and then you'll actually be able to recognize that every choice is a choice between kingdoms between Satan's kingdom and, and Christ's and with each choice, I become a little bit more like the leader of one of those kingdoms. And Jesus himself was tempted with bread before he was tempted with the kingdoms. He was tempted with something small before something great. And the order shows us that, there's, that little things progress into big things, and eventually they mark our character. And we end up looking a lot like the leader of whichever kingdom we're aligned with.
As we learn to listen to the Spirit and trust the Scriptures and follow Jesus and His example, because deep down we now desire His kingdom above Satan's. So don't be like Jake this morning, where, where your options are simply to just give in or to only just remove temptation or to just modify the behavior on the surface. But instead, grab hold of what's yours in Christ this morning. Live out new desires from a new identity as you saturate your imagination in Scripture and you saturate your heart in the beauty and goodness of the Father. Let's finish this morning by by reading this quote from N.T. Wright who says this. I love this. The Christian discipline of fighting temptation is not about self-hatred or about rejecting parts of our God-given humanity. It is about celebrating God's gift of full humanity And like someone learning a musical instrument, discovering how to tune it and play it to its best possibility. At the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to the God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ. And who holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to true glory. And in that glory lies the true happiness, the true fulfillment, which neither world nor flesh nor devil can begin to imitate. Let's go to the table together to again sustain that love and loyalty as we take the bread and cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one who resisted sin perfectly, for the one who suffered by becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for representing us so that you can relate to us. We thank you for the gospel and how it makes us new. We ask, Lord, that you grab hold of our hearts on deeper levels. If we've trusted you already, we want to continue to trust you. If we haven't trusted you yet, then this is the moment where we want to reach out and say, I do trust you. I embrace Christ for all he's done. And as we take the cup and as we take the bread, we pray that you'd let the temptation and suffering and death of Jesus Christ become so real to us that we find, as the hymn goes, that we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.